People with metabolic syndrome have low HDL and high particle counts. It's clear as day. Insulin resistance drives up particle count. Does that mean that someone who's not insulin resistant and who's really healthy with a high particle count is at risk? Probably not at all, because you are looking at a proxy for the problem, an indirect marker of something that potentially could give you heart disease. But we have tons of people with high particle counts with zero calcium scores and no disease. I mean, it's just a risk factor. Welcome to the HVMN Podcast. This is your host, Jeff Wu. I hope you're having a good day. Metabolic syndrome. It's a term we throw out all the time on this podcast, and it's about time we have an episode specifically to define metabolic syndrome, why we should care, and what we can do about it. To help me do this, we have none other than Ivor Cummins. Ivor comes from a professional background in engineering and therefore applies an engineering mindset and problem-solving approach to the field of nutrition and metabolic health. After spending 30 years in corporate technical leadership positions, Ivor is now the chief program officer for the IHDA, the Irish Heart Disease Awareness. Ivor regularly speaks at well-known health and medical conferences around the world on the same stage as professors and doctors. Ivor and I discuss what metabolic syndrome is and how to reverse it, what a CAC scan is and how calcium could be a good direct marker for cardiovascular disease, and discuss the nuances of different types of fat, saturated, unsaturated, polyunsaturated, and trans fats. Ivor, Mr. Fat Emperor, welcome to the program. Hey, thanks a lot, Jeff. It's great to be here. You know, as we we're just talking about and warming up before the actual recording here is the observation that you have engineers really shaking up the discussion within the nutrition, physiology, biochemistry side of, of, of the world. And you wouldn't expect a medical doctor going to a chemical engineering conference, and I know you're a chemical engineer by background, standing alongside and giving keynotes and being on panels with professional chemical engineers. But in the world of nutrition, that is very much certainly the case where you have been well-received as a speaker and a thought leader on a lot of these topics with professors, academics who've been studying nutrition and physiology for a lot, for their entire career. What do you think is going on here? Yeah, it seems incongruous for sure, uh, Jeff. I suppose at its most fundamental, medical doctors are very busy in their practice and they get a certain education and a lot of them don't have time to really research deeply and they're not really quite into biochemistry and metabolic pathways. They're more physiology, anatomy and you know, uh, pharmaceuticals required for which disease and identifying the problem, all that stuff. And they're really busy. Uh, whereas engineers, if you're a biochemical engineer like me, if you have an incentive to go and decode these matters, the beauty is that health matters are so important for all of us. Like I have five children, I try and stay fit and healthy, and I have an incentive in being healthy and accessing some longevity so i'm incentivized to go after this fear that's not really mine whereas a doctor is not really incentivized a busy doctor to start digging into engineering you know there's no driver so that, that's one difference um and also i think the engineering mindset the problem solving skill i mean it is called the problem solving profession and it's all around the logic and the philosophy of problem solving and data statistics statistical inference the more problem solving focused engineers like i was one i'm a, a lead problem solver for 25 years it's my art and trade 
So when I do have a requirement to find out about health, like when I got poor blood test markers and the doctors weren't sure what they meant, and I began to look them up in the published research and I realized, oh my God, these markers are way more important than cholesterol. I'm naturally drawn into saying, I gotta know. I have all the tools of my whole career that enabled me to rapidly research rapidly know the wheat from the chaff, rapidly assess the statistical significance in the data tables and go into the supplementary tables in these papers, ignore the abstract. Because the conclusion in the abstract I found, it may be very, very misleading depending on the team's bias. So you've got to go into the data. So it's just, it's a playground for certain types of engineer, particularly with biochemical background as opposed to say mechanical, and particularly ones who specialize in technical leadership and problem solving, as opposed to project management engineers who might be more, you know, scheduling and organizational. I think that's interesting from a problem-solving perspective. So you wanted to problem-solve some of your own medical results that you were seeing from blood panels, and we'll get into that. But what inspired you to go from, okay, I want to debug myself to saying, hey, I think I have gotten something that the quote-unquote professionals haven't gotten, and I'm going to start actually being someone that's quite vocal about that. If you were to give a devil's advocate argument, as engineers or, or folks that are just rational, I think the argument to authority is not very a great one. But how did you deal with some of that pushback? Hey, this is outside your lane. You're just a chemical engineer. You're misleading people. You're giving people bad guidance. How did you navigate that? And how did you think about it as you were beginning exploring some of these initial ideas and started disseminating it well okay jeff well firstly i'm going to say to all my critics out there from other spheres in life who continue to come at me uh, i just want to let them know i enjoy it <laughs> but that said uh, earlier on it was uncomfortable to be uh, criticized for not being a doctor and not being whatever the reality was that when i did the research within two to three weeks of admittedly obsessive intensive research I realized I had decoded my high liver enzymes and my high serum ferritin and what they meant. And I had also discovered myself independently the metabolic syndrome and the insulin resistance syndrome. And I put together the pieces and realized, wow, there's a whole world of disease pathways out there that are huge. And I began to discover they tower over cholesterol in terms of importance. And I knew that that no one really knew this. And I thought I'd discovered it. <laughs> so I'll admit now, I was under the impression that I had discovered it. Now, it was later I discovered the low-carb community and began to discover other people talking about these topics. Uh, but at first, I thought I'd really happened upon it with my research. I felt driven to tell the engineers at work because I knew we had overweight guys and I knew probably half our engineers had some level of metabolic syndrome. And I discovered it was massively important so i said okay i'm going to go into work and i made the decision i'm going to give a technical talk so i'd given many advanced technical talks att's on the technology in our high volume business but i said i'll go in and give one on metabolic syndrome and this is after you learning about it for about two three weeks and you're ready you're like okay i or, or, or did you study this for longer? Longer, in fairness, yeah. Two or three weeks, I realized I was onto something huge. And actually, one Wednesday evening, I realized I could predict from my research that I could make a hypothesis that serum ferritin, or the iron loading in the blood that I had high, I realized that that was a sixth marker for metabolic syndrome. 
That was before I got any data on it. So I went down and delved and I found a paper on a Wednesday night that proposed that serum ferritin should be the sixth marker for metabolic syndrome. And I went, bingo, right? Because I predicted that with no proof. And I realized then I had it. I The moment as a problem-solving engineer, you realize I've got 90% of it. I've got 90% of what I need to know. So I got very excited, but then I went on and became obsessed with lipoprotein and cholesterol metabolism because I was brought into all of that through insulin resistance, which raises LDL particle count. And I realized that the LDL particle count was being perceived as a really good cholesterol risk measure. But I knew from my research that that's mostly because hyperinsulinemic states raise the particle number. So I realized they were even misconstruing or misunderstanding that. Six months of study and putting together a lot of material, I gave the first lectures. I made sure I was very well researched before I actually went up in front of a room of 100 plus and actually lectured them on health. But when I did, there was an enormous positive response because we have several hundred engineers and all of them knew that I was who I was. And they kind of knew without being arrogant that if I've gone off and researched something heavily, it's highly unlikely I'm going to be incorrect. So they were interested. And we had the discussion in a, a 48 minute or 50 minute Q&A afterwards. And I was able to answer every question that came up including all of the contradictory questions. That was important. Yeah, but how could they be all wrong for 50 years on carbohydrate and fat? You know, but how could they be wrong on cholesterol? Sure, we've heard it for decades. And all of those questions where the people found it hard to believe what I was saying could be true. And I answered them all. And I brought up more papers. And I explained the graphs. And I got a buzz. Uh, and once I got this buzz and I realized I was helping people, that was it. I was hooked. Yeah, and I think the way I kind of see the world unshaking is that you see the internet revolution really disseminating and, and decentralizing the power of computing. You can make the argument that cryptocurrencies is decentralizing information around financial institutions and this movement that you're a part of or we're collectively a part of. You could call it biohacking or citizen science. It's really decentralizing medical and health knowledge. I want to just caveat, and I think you're referencing the doctors that you were initially working with and bouncing ideas from. I don't think we're saying that doctors have malintention or bad intentions here. It's a matter of training and time. Especially in the American healthcare system, they're trained to build to codes. You're incentivized to kind of churn through your patients. You have 10, 15 minutes to go through and knock out as many prescriptions as possible, essentially. But if you have actually have time to sit down with a doctor, and we've had multiple MDs on the program talking about this, it sounds like they want, they know the system is flawed. They know that training is not, you know, you know, some of my friends are going through medical school now are just recently wrapped up. They had like four hours of nutrition lecture out of an entire program of four years. So I, I think we're in this cultural, institutional, glacial pace, and you're sort of fighting at the front lines at these conferences. Just curious in terms of just like clarifying what kind of lifestyle you lived before. Was it just, you know, nutrition was not something you thought about and you just ate a standard, I presume, Western diet or a standard Irish diet that had standard carb load of breads and all of that? I mean, were you thought, would you think ever think about nutrition? Well, I guess the diet I'd eaten, I was relatively health focused. So I would have eaten stuff I knew I probably shouldn't like occasionally like chocolate and 
some sweets and I'd occasionally have pizzas, but I kind of knew they were junk food. I was eating good, my wife is a very good cook, and I was eating good meals with fish or meat, but I was eating quite a lot of potatoes as well. Often when we had rice, I'd eat a lot of rice, because you know, a big pile of rice with, with meat juices and sauce on it. Tastes good. Yeah, it's just wham, it hits you. And also, it was the base of the pyramid, and it was healthy, clean. It was base of the pyramid, so it was healthy. So I knew I could eat lots of whole grain bread and rice, in my mind that was healthy so I did I was eating quite a bit of fruit too but I was drinking a lot of fruit juice because one easy way out that I had been doing for some time a glass of real fresh squeezed orange juice and the price had come down a lot is kind of one of your five a day I didn't want to eat loads of fruits and stuff and I wasn't crazy about veg so I figured I'll drink a load of orange juice and I'm getting all this five a day stuff and it's nice of course it's nice it's sugar right it's like 50 grams of sugar I mean, it's a, it's a crazy sugar bomb. I didn't realize, but I was piling fruit juice down on my liver, thinking I was doing the right thing. But I wasn't alone. I'm still not alone. And that mix for me in someone who's predisposed, like a lot of people are towards insulin resistance, over the years, it just built up. Yeah, that's where it's super pernicious because you thought you were doing the right thing. It's not like you're fairly sensible. You weren't just trying to drink soda, eat pancakes and birthday cakes you were trying to be sensible and you're developing metabolic syndrome i think that's why this is terrifying and i think we've touched upon this syndrome x metabolic syndrome a number of times uh, it might be just good to define for folks who are just getting up to speed on the topic there are five general markers that define what metabolic syndrome is and i think depending on the definition you need three or more of them to be considered metabolic syndrome can you help us define the five markers that make up the pillars for metabolic syndrome? Yeah, well, no, that's a good one to, to cover. So Reven was the master uh, way back decades ago of, of defining syndrome X. And, and he noticed, Professor Reven, that there's these five measurements that when they're high or three of five are high, they cluster. It links to heart disease, cancers, and kind of everything bad. And later on, he kind of tied them all into hyperinsulinemia syndrome, and it got better named. But basically, a low HDL, a low good cholesterol, a large waist size above a certain limit, hypertension above a certain limit, blood sugar being high, or triglycerides from your cholesterol panel being high. So they're the five. Now you can add in GGT and serum ferritin now, and there's loads more, but, but the key point is all of these things are only hinting at the real problem. And the real problem is high insulin and insulin resistance. More recently, it got properly named. It's not really metabolic syndrome, it's insulin resistance syndrome. And all of these markers are not in themselves massively causal. Like low HDL, you could argue, it's not so much causal because you have less HDL, and HDL helps take your cholesterol out of your artery walls. It's not so much that. Low HDL indicates that your HDL functionality has been impaired. And it indicates you're insulin resistant. So, and hypertension indicates you're insulin resistant. It's not just that the hypertension strains your arteries. So a lot of these things are not completely causal. They're just signs that something's wrong. And that's why it was a syndrome. To this day, it's true that even being overweight and failing that criteria, you can have grossly overweight people with enormous wastes who are perfectly healthy 
who are insulin sensitive. So it's good for people to realize these five things are not directly causal, but when you start clocking them up, they more and more prove that you're insulin resistant. And that's the state that's problematic. Which makes sense because I think in terms of easily measured biomarkers, it seems that people tend to look at cholesterol, triglycerides as part of the standard panel. But it sounds like this notion of a facet insulin just seemed to be less talked about. People never really thought about that. Do you have a sense of why that is the case historically? Now, I think people hear about insulin resistance, or maybe this is just bias for us because we're in the community. We hear people talk about insulin resistance. But I guess in terms of like the broad global community, I think people think of insulin as probably this like magical drug that cured diabetes, right? Like that's probably the classic thing people think about when they hear insulin. You know, some scientists back in the 1900s invented this thing, put it off patent, and it cured diabetes. And now we're saying, hey, actually too much of this is not good. And it's actually not actually solving the root cause when you're giving people insulin. You're actually just kind of giving an alcoholic more alcohol type of a a salve. What are some of the most compelling evidence points that you saw that is retelling that story? Right. So yeah, there is an unfortunate history, exactly as you say. Insulin was discovered and it miraculously cured type 1 diabetics who could not produce insulin. And literally people who would otherwise die quickly were now saved. So insulin was golden boy or girl, if you will. Type 2 diabetes then, as we went through the uh, 20th century, became more and more of a problem. But it was always viewed as a glucose, blood glucose problem, because they knew, well, type 2 diabetics, their blood glucose gets higher and higher. And up until the 50s, they really did genuinely, honestly view type 2 diabetes as a glucose problem that maybe required insulin to help manage this problematic glucose. What they didn't realize was the real problem that defines type 2 diabetes is an excess of insulin. The only reason it becomes a glucose problem after maybe 20 years of having type 2 diabetes is you now can no longer produce enough insulin from your battered pancreas to keep the glucose under control. So they viewed it as a glucose problem. Now, Yalo and Burson, uh, I interviewed Dr. Joseph Kraft back in 2015. It's on my YouTube And he brilliantly in the 70s worked out by doing 15,000 glucose and insulin assays, two things he worked out. You got to measure the insulin after drinking a glucose drink for a few hours. And that's the real test for diabetes. And he also realized from research that most heart disease links to type 2 diabetes, even if you're not diagnosed. But he told me about Yalo and Burson. And Yalo and Burson in the 50s were brilliant, but they discovered that type 2 diabetics actually had very high insulin. And it was such a shocking discovery that when they went to publish it, and they were completely correct, they had groundbreaking data now to say, wow, type 2 diabetes is actually a high insulin disease. It's not glucose. And they couldn't get published. And they got in a lot of hot water because the American Diabetes Association and all the groups and the medical profession said it's a glucose disease. What do you, what do you mean? High insulin? But the standard of care is giving them even more insulin. Yeah. So it didn't fit with the way the world worked. So they never really got that established. And Kraft in the 70s brought out even more data, like I mentioned, that type 2 diabetes is vastly bigger than the diagnosed people. Because if you measure their insulin after a meal, you're going to find a ton more type 2 diabetics. But no one wanted to hear that either. Because they didn't want to face the fact that maybe 50% of people are essentially diabetic. Because that's bad news. Everyone who who was discovering this was swimming upstream, as Joe Kraft put it. And the system just didn't want to go down this road. And it's kind of to this day 
the same thing. They like to view it as a glucose disease and it suits everyone. And maybe a lot of them really believe it. And the ones who understand otherwise know that rocking the boat too much is, is not going to help anyone. It's hard. But that, that was the genesis of how we got here. But now it's becoming more and more apparent. And the failure of the ACCORD trial where they, they shoved in more insulin and they got worse mortality outcomes. And now they're going for the SGL2 inhibitors that basically make you not absorb glucose in your diet and you pee it out and it gives you urinary tract infections. But they're pushing those now. They'll do anything but admit that it's putting glucose in your mouth is the biggest part of the problem. I mean, that sounds like, again, it sounds like you're giving alcoholics alcohol, a type of a way to solve, which will short term treat the symptom, but you're not solving the core root issue. I mean, that's fascinating. I think one of the things that I think interesting is that people look at an oral glucose tolerance test. I think people are probably aware of it, you know, hemoglobin A1C or a fasted blood glucose test. You know, it sounds like some of the earlier researchers def- really defined that, you know, we should really be looking at insulin as a core biomarker here. My understanding is just like hard to do, uh, but it sounds like it's the more important clinical biomarker. Is it not hard, not hard to do? Why, you know, if you had, maybe this is asking you to project out a little bit, what would be your standard of care ideal in terms of diagnosing metabolic health? Yeah, well, I would, uh, firstly, with the cholesterol, the classic cholesterol panel, I would overwhelmingly focus on the ratios of total cholesterol to HDL and triglyceride to HDL as the most valuable markers from a standard cholesterol panel. And I think a lot of doctors just look at total and LDL and they they don't realize that. So that that would be a quick fix uh, and say that the ratios are of value. And the reason is because they are a pretty good proxy for insulin resistance, ironically. So the best thing from the cholesterol panel is that it mimics or it's a proxy for something else that's not to do with cholesterol. So there's an irony, but you do that. Um, The advanced cholesterol panels are more useful. If you get the APOB over the APOA1 ratio, it's getting easier to get. Or the LPIR, the lipoprotein IR score, they're two good measures from the advanced panel, if you can get that. Um, Then we get to GGT is measured in Ireland as part of the standard liver panel. And a recent study showed that people with high GGT combined with a higher BMI could have 15 to 20 times the risk for future type 2 diabetes. So it's a massively predictive and it's a cheap test and they don't do it in America. Only in, I'm not sure why. So you drop a GGT and a ferritin in there. Uh, The blood glucose I would combine with a blood insulin for most people, particularly in America where a recent study showed that 88% did not meet metabolic health criteria in the blood tests. In that kind of population, you're going to want to do an insulin and a glucose and get the HOMA, the H-O-M-A. There's a calculator online, HOMA insulin resistance. That one takes fasting insulin and glucose, which are not massively accurate a fasting insulin and a fasting glucose, but together in the equation, they can be quite good. So they'd be easy. If you get into more advanced tests, obviously an oral glucose tolerance is a bit more effort. And it's maybe if anything turns up not great in the basic panel, maybe do an OGTT and just take the insulin at two hours after drinking the 75 grams glucose. So it's not a big deal. Do a blood draw at two hours and just grab an insulin, which I believe is $28 now. And I've heard lower costs. And then you get the two-hour insulin. And if that's below 30, you're pretty sure to pass a more advanced test of diabetes. And if it's above 40 units, 
you're probably going to fail an advanced test. It's a quickie version of the Craft 5-hour assay, and it's quite powerful. Now, you get in then to adiponectin and leptin and more advanced hormonal tests. This is the appetite-related hormones. Yeah, and also the health of your fat tissue and whether it's insulin-sensitive. So what you really want is a high adiponectin, means your fat tissue is in great shape and signaling properly, and a low leptin likewise means you don't have excess fat or dysfunctional fat. I mean, a couple of years ago when I was at my healthiest, I've probably slipped now, I got a 4-leptin, which was flagged as being too low, but, but that's good. And I got a 20 adiponectin, which was flagged as too high, but it was actually really good. They're maybe not in standard panels getting these, these hormones, but for further investigation, they're the kind of things you start going into. Yeah, and I think the point with reference ranges is that, that I, I believe they're just like the 25 percentile and 75 percentile of some population. And if our reference range is on people that are 50 percent with syndrome X, metabolic syndrome, insulin resistance, are that, is that even the benchmark that you want to be guiding towards, right? And I think as, as engineers, if you're benchmarking towards a sick population, you're optimizing towards a non-optimal state. Is that even a sensible thing to do? <laughs> exactly, Jeff. And you know what? I was laughing at this very early on back in 2012 because I looked up the reference range, range for insulin. It was 5 to 25 microunits. And I said, yeah. but anything over 7 or 8 and certainly 10, you've got action to take pronto. And 25 is the upper acceptable limit. And uh, teenagers, insulin has been going up and up and up over the last 30 or 40 years. And I believe they've just nudged up the reference range. So it's like on a high volume process, your yield is getting worse and worse and your quality is going down and down. And you just keep opening your inspection criteria and say, screw it. But what's happening is you're letting human product pour out by the millions who have early heart attacks, cancers, all of this stuff. But no one's responsible for that. So they just keep opening the, the ranges. The most important test for a middle-aged person Unless your bloods are really nice, in which case you're truly low risk, or your blood tests are really bad, in which case you're high risk anyway and you need to be doing something. For all the middle risk people, which is the largest group where the most heart attacks occur, a calcification scan, it's in the 2018 guidelines, it will blow away the blood risk factors in terms of predicting your true risk. And it'll give you something to measure every couple of years if you have an issue. You can change your diet lifestyle, drugs, whatever. And a couple of years later, if your calcium is slowed down, you've got a huge, not guarantee, but you've got a huge reassurance that you've stopped your progression of atherosclerosis. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about that. It sounds like it's a big area of focus for you. It would be helpful to provide the steel man version of standard of care, which is that high cholesterol is a risk for cardiovascular risk. For cardiovascular disease, basically eat less cholesterol, eat less fat. What we're talking about here is that cholesterol panel, the lipid panel is not super interesting. It's an important piece of the puzzle here, but the CAC score is where we should be really looking at in terms of a predictive risk measurement here. So can you talk about what does a CAC score measure? What is actually going on in the veins where calcium is such a predictive 
marker to look at and why we should be thinking about doing that, incorporating it to our standard uh, yearly checkup. Yeah, and perhaps not yearly, but I'll get into that. Uh, certainly the first one-off one at middle age, men over 40, women over 50, is the key. And then later, depending on what your result actually was. But I suppose the fundamental thing is people have to separate risk factors like hypertension or cholesterol ratios. They are things that indirectly give you a murky view into your future risk. You're looking very indirectly at things that kind of correlate with risk, but you're not actually looking at whether or not the person has disease that needs addressing. The huge difference with calcification scan, it's a quick CT scan, five minutes, maybe $100 in the States, and it measures the amount of calcium in your coronary arteries in your heart. It's a high-speed strobe x-ray. And what it does basically, atherosclerosis, the heart disease of your arteries that causes heart attacks, most heart attacks and all the other problems and strokes. That process, as it progresses to dangerous levels, your body brings in calcium to strengthen the, the areas of the artery most affected. So if you have bad atherosclerosis and you're heading for a heart attack, overwhelmingly, you'll have a lot of atheroma in your arteries. Uh, some areas of your artery will be clear and some will have pustules or atheroma that are really risky. And if you're in that state, almost certainly your body has taken in more and more calcium to try and stop those areas rupturing because evolution is not an idiot. Right. It's, it's trying to solve the problem, right? I think that's like the thing where I, I think people get confused where, oh, there's a lot of cholesterol that's floating around and it's like blocking up my arteries. So I got to reduce eating cholesterol. And I think what you're hinting at is that no, cholesterol is, or, or, or that LDL is really response to the inflammation in your blood vessels, right? Can we unpack that story a little bit? Oh, well, that one, yeah. So the cholesterol, the way I'd view it is, if you have higher particle numbers, no one really, no one with any credibility talks about the old LDL concentration. That was the amount of LDL when they smash up all the LDL particles, the old LDLC. No one who's serious looks at that anymore. The LDL particle count from the advanced lipoprotein, the high particle count is seen to be a much better risk factor. And in fairness, it is. It makes a joke of the old LDL because it tracks pretty well like hypertension might with future events. There's a series of problems with that. One is the whole concept that the LDL is part of the repair process. That's still debated as to the extent that that's true. The calcium certainly, but the LDL particles, it's debated. What you can say about the LDL particles is, A, having higher particle counts is a super strong indicator of insulin resistance. And that's where it gets a lot of its predictive power. So in that situation, you'd say, well, I better fix the insulin resistance, not just the proxy, the number. People with metabolic syndrome have low HDL and high particle counts. It's clear as day. Insulin resistance drives up particle count. Does that mean that someone who's not insulin resistant and who's really healthy with a high particle count is at risk? Probably not at all, because you are looking at a proxy for the problem, an indirect marker of something that potentially could give you heart disease. But we have tons of people with high particle counts with zero calcium scores and no disease. I mean, it's just a risk factor. The second thing is that the particles, it is arguable from much science, recent science, that if they're not oxidized in the blood by hyperglycemia or high glucose or inflammatory pressures, if your particles are not oxidized, compromised, then they won't really cause a problem and get trapped in the wall. So there's another thing. Well, you need to know, is my high particle count got a lot of oxidation and problems or is it actually all fine? It's so the second question. You need to know the answer. And 
There's multiple other layers that if your endothelium or the inner layer of your arteries is compromised, that is an extremely strong hypothesis that that's what allows atherosclerosis. And if it's healthy and you have no inflammatory condition and low insulin and glucose, you can have any number of particles and they're never going to become a problem because your artery is healthy. And if your HDL, I know I'm going on a bit here, but if you have a high number of particles and a genuine problem that's driving down your HDL functionality, then your HDL will not be properly moving cholesterol out of the wall. So you may have a problem with more particles then and benefit by lowering them. But what if your HDL is working fine, your endothelium is fine, you have no oxidation of your particles, then why would you be looking at a high number and, and being worried? It doesn't make sense. So there's all, it's like when they talk about the particle number, a lot of people, it's like that's the big thing. And in an engineering sense, that's one factor in a whole range of factors that may or not have any relevance depending on the other five factors. But they're not talking about the other five factors. That's the problem with the cholesterol theory. They're not talking about the other five massively important things. They're just like, it's like myopic. It's it's a network system, right? It, it, this is a lot of interplaying parts and one marker is not sufficient. It's it's required, but it's not sufficient to make a diagnosis. Yeah, and that phrase is good. It's required. In other words, if you take away all your particles, you probably can't really generate atherosclerosis. And that sounds quite convincing as to their importance. I use a simple analogy for lay people. A plane, the rudder servo breaks, the rudder locks hard, pilot can't control it, hard landing crash, and no one gets killed in the mechanical impact, but everyone's burnt alive with the fuel. You could say the fuel is the root cause. If there was no fuel, no one would have got burnt, they all would have walked. But that's that's misleading. Yes, the fuel is part of the process to kill the people, but what was the root cause? So we've always had LDL particles evolution designed them we've always had them they've been the same for all of human evolution before there was any heart disease worth a damn now our heart disease has gone through the roof in the last century the LDL particles were always there the root cause is something else overwhelmingly and this simple analogy i just so frustrating when people say that ldl particles are fundamental they're the sine qua non in one sense they are but in a very misleading sense and this is the argument that's going to have to be had in the coming decade. So it sounds like when you've identified calcium as a marker in, in the artery, that's essentially a sign of damage that is directly causal to, to the cardiovascular, I guess, disease. That is, is vastly more important because exactly, you only get calcium in diseased arteries. You only get calcium in diseased areas of arteries and never where they're healthy. It's a direct marker of dangerous atherosclerosis progression. Direct marker. This is like seeing a scar on your skin or your muscle. I mean, just essentially some kind of scarring. Yeah, if you, if you think of an analogy, if you were um, using chemicals and they were destroying your skin and you were developing scabs all over your skin, you know, you could look at your blood for markers of inflammatory reaction and they may or may not tell you things. They may correlate with your problem. But if you count on different people, the scabs on their skin, you're going to get a direct reflection of the damage. That's calcium. If you have zero calcium in middle age, you have on average from all the studies say the same thing, maybe a one to one and a half percent chance of a major heart attack in the next 10 years. If you have a high score up in the 500 to 1000, you may have 20 times the risk. Now, a high LDL particle count on a good day might give you double the risk. But high insulin and bad HOMA will be more than double. 
There's a million measures that will give you a better risk estimation than LDL particle, but calcification towers over them all. In fact, it towers over them so much that if you take all the risk factors in the algorithm and put them all together to get the best possible risk estimation for an individual, if you scan those people, it's going to beat all the risk factors put together in an algorithm and then some. And in fact, the middle risk people where most heart attacks occur if you scan them all with a calcium scan, you will take 50 to 70% of those middle risk people, supposedly middle risk, where you're not sure what's happening. 60 to 70%, you can move them into genuine high or low risk, recategorize. Yeah, because I think uh, yeah, this, uh, the data is just conflated. I think one way that helps me understand this better is from an energy model or a fueling model. Our cells require glucose, triglycerides, things like ketones as substrates. And if you just have a lot of these floating around, that means that your body's not regulating itself that well. It's not homeostatically regulating. Uh, there's too much fuel going around. So I think when it's like you have high glucose, high triglyceride, all these markers for metabolic syndrome is essentially just like a, a way to just show that there's some root inefficiency that your body's not managing its energy that well. And if you think from that perspective, it's like, okay, looking at one in of itself is not very interesting because sometimes it makes sense to have a snapshot of having high glucose. If you're like doing a weightlifting competition or something, you probably want a lot of anaerobic fuel. So I don't, I wouldn't say it's like no sugar all the time. There's some reason for having high sugar, maybe at some points. Or it might be reasonable to have a little bit higher triglycerides if you're doing super long endurance race, maybe. But when you have all this energy at the same time and it's chronic, that's where it's problematic. And I think it's unpacking this and looking at the biomarker at its relevant context. Yeah, and exactly. That's I love that one, uh, Jeff, but all at the same time. So a healthy state is to have low insulin and moderate blood glucose but to be honest it can be a little high like especially if you're doing intense exercise in the couple of hours following that your body shoots glucose out of your liver and your glucose shoots up and your ldl particle count shoots up following intense exercise so there are times it's appropriate diabetes type 2 uh, dr ron rosedale i love his description he said it's the perfect model of accelerated aging and that's why the risk factor for type 2 diabetes is five or six times for heart disease. Most of them die of heart attacks. Cancers are higher. And it's because type 2 diabetes is, is that model of accelerated aging. Everything gets damaged. And type 2 diabetics, they have high glucose, they have high insulin, and they have high fatty acids in their blood simultaneously. And that is a system, control system, utterly broken. Everything gets burnt. The high glucose damages myriad systems. The high insulin independently damages myriad systems and the high fatty acids add fuel to the fire causing more insulin resistance and feedback through toll-like receptor 4 it, it's a chaotic destroyed control system and the beauty is all you need to do is change the inputs like verta are showing and volick and finney and all these people like you said all around the world take away the offense from the mouth because that's where it mostly comes in. And the whole system generally starts fixing itself. You'll have metabolic damage from long periods of type 2 diabetes, and there's a molecular memory, so you can't always go back to someone who never got it. But you can manage it to keep it non-disease driving. You can get your insulin glucose down, and you can get the control system back again. We know this. And you can do it with diet, but not the diet they tell them to eat, right? Hey, listeners, if you're enjoying this episode thus far, 
please consider writing a review on our iTunes page. It really does help increase the visibility of our podcast. That's really the best way to support our work. In appreciation for your review, we'll hook you up with $15 of HVMN store credit. We also love it when we see you guys share our episodes that you've enjoyed on your Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. And we often reshare those posts. Just tag us at our handle at HVMN. Now back to the show. Yeah, no, a perfect segue. I was actually going to just go into that. So we have an assessment of the crime scene. Now, how do we prevent the crime from even getting started? So diet, one of the primary inputs that we can control. What should we do there? So what the standard recommendations are, lower carbohydrate intake seems sensible given the, the, the evidence here. And because uh, nutrition, dietary consumption is zero sum, if you're having lower car- carbohydrate load, you necessarily need to replace it with either higher fat or higher protein load or some other substrate, right? Ketones could be a, an interesting kind of fourth macro that is coming. That's something that we've been thinking a lot about. But I think the fat story is probably a good place to start because I think that's where the most controversy is. If you look at diabetes.org, which is the American Diabetics Association website, they'll have good fat, bad fat, or, or healthy fat, unhealthy fat. And then the healthy fat area, or let's start with unhealthy fat and let's unpack it. Uh, they'll write, Cholesterol is unhealthy, trans fat is unhealthy, and saturated fat is unhealthy. And then for the healthy fat area, they'll write monounsaturated, polyunsaturated, and omega-3 fats. What are the fats that you would agree with? I imagine you would agree with some of the critique on trans fat, but I imagine you'd also disagree on characterizing PUFAs or polyunsaturated as a fat to look to add into your diet. Can we unpack that a little bit? Yeah, Jeff. So, yeah, the fats, wow. So, basically, you agree that the trans are bad, but that's a no-brainer. So, it's almost like, yeah, you give them that, but come on. It's obvious. It's been said by Mary Enig and by other researchers 40 years ago, lost positions in university for saying that trans fats were a problem. And now they're banning them, finally, 40 years. So, trans fats are not good, but I would say that the industrial seed oils, the industrial linoleic acid and omega-6 that are extracted from seeds with high pressure, temperature, hexane. In the process, they get so stinking, you nearly pass out, and they use deodorizing chemicals, bleaching washes, to deodorize the scum that they they make so that we will not be warned not to eat them. That's the way I look at it. It's crazy, industrial process. So these omega-6 polys and let's let's just say we agree with the omega-3 there's an argument you shouldn't have too much omega-3 because it's a signaling molecule and shouldn't be a fuel and it also is delicate and to excess prone to oxidation so you should have enough but not too much but let's say omega-3 is good certainly it's pretty good the omega-6 however is exposed as a polyunsaturate to those hydrogen bonds you've got the double bonds it is delicate, exposed to oxidation. It becomes incorporated in all of our cholesterol particles in the shell, right? All the fats in the cholesterol that's in atheroma and atherosclerosis, they're all polyunsaturated, omega-6, basically. That's, that's just the way it is because the saturated are stable fats and they don't really oxidize. It's the polys that are the potential challenge. Now, if we take these omega-6 polys, 
oh, there's, I did a two and a half hour podcast with Tucker Goodrich on this single topic a few weeks yeah. ago. So people can go look at that. Essentially, we had around a half to 1% of energy in our diet from omega-6 poly in evolution. And we have gone up to 10 to 14% now. Primarily from things like soybean oil, canola oil, the seed vegetable oils. Just to clarify. Exactly. And I think we can say a blanket statement. Tucker might disagree. But if you just eat more, some more of the natural whole foods as part of a good nutrient-dense diet that happen to have omega-6, I don't consider that something to worry about at all. You're right. The overwhelming influx of omega-6 linoleic acid into our diet is from vegetable oils. So soy oil has gone up a factor of, believe it or not, a thousand since the late uh, 1900s or the 1800s. It correlates pretty much all the way through with obesity and other disease. Ironically, while they tell us it's good. Recently, soy oil, the, an industry body came out with a genetically modified soybean oil, a new one. And this is industry. And they claimed that their new genetically modified soybean oil is less obesogenic than traditional soybean oil. Without realizing it, they acknowledge that soybean oil is obesogenic in animal models and in humans. It's, but there's loads of papers on this with mice. In 2013 to 2017, one team took mice on low, medium, and high-fat diets, and they put in 10 to 12% of polyunsaturated omega-6 versus 1%. And the reason they did it was they said in their abstract, we want to model in animal models the current consumption of omega-6 oils versus the evolutionary one. And we want to see what happens. On low-fat diets, on medium-fat diets, and on high-fat diets over a few years, always the same result. All the obesogenicity or the driving of obesity and liver fat all went with the 10 to 12% poly. And they fixed everything else constant. I mean, this is this is proven on you, no one knows it. Then you have industry coming out and admitting it and saying they've got a new concoction, GMO, that's not as bad as the old one. This is at the same time that the authorities are telling us to horse these into our bodies up to 10 to 15%. It's kind of absurd from a scientific viewpoint, but they... They believe it because of some badly run trials 30 years ago that seemed to show a slight drop in cardiovascular events over two years. What they're missing is the long-term obesogenicity, liver damage, and everything else that's going to go bad. And even it's argued in many papers with animal models cancer that are the long-term consequences of taking in these oils. Right. And I just also want to underline the initial statement that you said that it takes a lot of hyper-processing to get these vegetable oils. If you just think about it from a very lay perspective, I know where the animal fat is. I, I understand that there's, you know, there's a piece of saturated fat on the steak, but where is the oil in a corn or in a soybean? I mean, you're not just squeezing out oil from these things. So just from a very intuitive perspective, where are these oils even coming from, right? It's not, it's not like you squeeze a soybean and there's like oil that just drips out of it where like you squeeze like a piece of bacon, okay, you can get fat out of it. These oils don't even really exist in nature. How are we getting 15% of our calories from this? Because it sounds like, okay, saturated fat, we've been indoctrinated that, you know, animal fat, bad, 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 bad. And maybe there's some argument on how to be nuanced there. But this vegetable oil thing, these are very unnatural, strange substances. Well, yeah, I mean, that that is a good way of putting it for the layperson. Uh, there was... Uh, I forget who gave the quote, but someone said the idea that modern diseases, clearly modern diseases, could now be blamed on ancient foods is inherently absurd. 
Of course it's absurd. Our modern disease epidemics have exploded in the backdrop of greatly increasing refined carb sugar and vegetable oils. Who the hell could even think of blaming an egg? But they're still saying it. And I chaired a debate over 800 in the audience at Low Carb Denver a couple of weeks back between Dariush Mozafarian, you know, the Tufts University professor who's up there with Willett as the, the god of epidemiology, and Gary Taubes on my left. And we had a 45-minute debate, and I got a bit involved myself. But Dariush Mozafarian has come a long way, and he said, look, saturated fat is not so much an issue, and I agree with low-carbers, and low-refined-carb, I agree. So we have a lot of common ground. The big thing that really annoyed the audience was he maintained powerfully that vegetable oils replacing natural foods is good for you. Uh, and that's where a lot of the heat was. And you're, you're right. It makes no sense whatsoever. Yeah. And maybe just to be balanced here, or just give guidelines and not go over extreme. And I think, because I think in a low carb community, I think oftentimes we just focus on demonizing or just, I think, rightly criticizing and counterbalancing. I think the, the shift where there's a lot of movement towards carbohydrate, kind of vegan style foods. Which, again, there's another discussion there, but carbohydrate, low fat, that's a healthy way to go. But where do you see in the community that people are going kind of too far on the fat story? Yeah, and I've been guilty of this a little too. There's a few things. Um, and in, in myself and Dr. Gerber's book, Eat Rich, Live Long, we, we call it out as well. A couple of things about fat. That if you're not seeking to lose weight and you're healthy and everything's working fine for you, you know, having a ton of fat is okay and maybe your bulletproof coffee, but don't ever think if you're trying to lose weight that you'll magically lose weight by eating more fat. Fat is energy. It, it may be a much more metabolically safe diet to be low carb and high fat, and it may be less obesogenic. However, if you keep eating lots of fat and you enjoy your food, you, you'll put on weight. You may be a healthy overweight person. You've got to burn your own body fat if you want to lose weight. It's still energy surplus. It's still energy surplus. Yeah. The calories in, calories out model is, is generally an overwhelming lie because that's not what the problem is. But Coca-Cola would like you to think it's calories and exercise. That's a lie. But calories in and out is true at, one, at certain levels. I think the hormonal insulin carbohydrate model and the calories in calories out there's I think there's some there's some combination that that makes sense right it's like you don't eat infinite fat and still lose weight right like there's some level that you have to control the amount of calories in while looking at the hormonal effects of the types of calories so I think there is some reconciliation there right? Like, I think you would agree with that, right? I would. And it's a system. And you know what? There is individual variability. So while I think that for a modern population, most people, because most people now are metabolically ill, will, will benefit from a low-carb, healthy fats diet, there are people who can make a very low-fat, high-carb diet work from whole foods. And they can achieve insulin sensitivity through a different route. I just think it's a bit precarious and not very nice way to live. So I'd always say it's better low carb. But like you say, there's variability in people. So some people may be able to be really casual and eat all the fat they want. And they really don't put on weight. But then other people who are insulin sensitive obese, and myself and Dr. Gerber talk about this quite a bit in the book. If you're insulin sensitive and overweight, your body may be perfectly happy to store plenty of fat for a future famine. That may be your makeup. And if you eat all the fat you want and you enjoy your food, you might stay good and fat. And then you complain that the magic low carb isn't working. 
low-carb, high-fat works better for people who have metabolic disruption, insulin-resistant syndrome. And that's where simply switching your macros can greatly improve your health and also see very substantial weight loss. And also that type of macro, a lower-carb, higher healthy fat can enable you to control your appetite to allow you to eat less so there's many moving parts and it can be great but insulin sensitive obese people they have to start burning their body fat and that means you're on a you go on a low carb healthy fat diet but you start pulling the fat back in your diet and you replace the dietary fat with body fat there's no getting around it and another point is we were careful in the book to acknowledge the satiety factor of higher protein. Now, we were a little careful because there was a lot of talk about mTOR and cancer with higher protein at the time the book was coming out. And I think we were a little careful about pushing high protein for weight loss. We acknowledged it and showed the studies where clearly a higher protein diet helps with satiety and weight loss. But now I think Dr. Ted Naiman is great on this. He said the best diet for weight loss is a low-carb, low-fat diet and, and tend to have higher protein-type foods. And it ties in with what I said a minute ago. You've got a low-carb, healthy, high-ish protein diet and it's high-fat. You want to lose weight, start pulling back the fat element and replace it with body weight. It, it all links together, but it can be very confusing for some people because they want to know, well, what's the macro? Uh, there's not one macro. <laughs> no, I think that's an interesting point when I talk about ketogenic diet versus fasting. And sometimes people treat them as very, very separate ideas. But I think as you're saying, they're very, very related in terms of what metabolic pathways you're attacking. You, instead of eating external fat, you're just eating your internal fat. You're eating your internal stored body fat, right? Yeah, and that is so much the case. And we actually did tables in, in the book with data showing that effect in, in real life. As you reduce the fat and your body fat starts getting burned, you're still taking 2,000 calories a day. But increasingly, as you reduce the fat, you're burning more body fat. You're still on a low-carb, high-fat diet, keto even. But you're actually eating relatively low fat. But your body fat is filling in. That's so important. We always say, if you want to do the keto thing, do a healthy, low-carb, high-healthy-fats diet with plenty of protein and simply skip more meals to go keto. So rather than thinking psychologically, more fat to make me keto, no, 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 no. You want to go keto, just do more meal skipping and fasting, and you're already low-carb. When you do that, it turns into serious keto. But it's the safest, best way to do it through fasting. Pushing in fat and exogenous ketones I mean, there may be a place medically for certain diseases, for exogenous. Funny enough, I think of Ted again. Ted jokingly quipped that exogenous ketones are today's empty calories. Huh. Well, I would say that it depends on the application. Right? Yes. So I think if you're looking at exogenous ketones as an energy replacement or substrate, it is energy. But I think some of the exogenous ketones could be interesting for signaling effects or recovering from energy deficits or mm. for athletic performance when you can stack ketones and carbs at the same time. That is where the nuance is because I think because we make a ketone ester and my concern with a lot of the language around exogenous ketones, ketone salts out there is that they're selling it as like a magic weight loss thing. And I think you're exactly right. This is still an energy substrate and it doesn't just solve the problem of eating carbs. There has to be like a nuanced application of the, the product or any kind of thing that you're putting in your body. Yeah, I know in fairness, uh, yeah. Yeah, Jeff, I, there are many specialized 
uses for that. But all I was referring to was the classic shove in ketones, make a bit more keto happen, magic weight loss. That's obviously simplistic and 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 maybe mis misaligned. But then for certain disease states, and you you said it there, for specialized athletic performance, which is something I don't really get into so much, there's there's all kinds of potential benefits for specialized purposes, and many of them. But once the person knows they're doing a specialized thing, they know what they're doing, rather than just magic keto pills kind of thing. That, I think that's yeah. where the danger has been. That's all. Yeah, no, I agree. I would agree with you. It's not like, okay, eat your normal diet, drink some ketone esters or drink some exogenous ketones and you like repair the damage it's it's not it's not that great i wish there was something out there that could just do that but that probably doesn't exist right a lot of interesting work to be done in the space and maybe i want to get your quick thoughts on a couple ideas and i want to wrap up the retrospective of your time here first kind of rapid fire question carnivore curious to hear your quick thoughts there Ooh, carnivore. You've got to be careful here. Um, <laughs> I think it has uh, merits. I'll mention that myself and David, my boss, in terms of we're targeting the people most at risk for heart disease who have big disease. And there's certain evidence that extreme diets in people who have a lot of disease, diabetic dysfunction, they may have sensitivities, particularly APOE4 people which 23andMe, you can get the genetic test. It's around 17% of people. So there's kind of a little caveat there I'll mention that excessive proteins, fats, possibly for them, they may be sensitive. It might be for everyone. But that said, carnivore has a lot of merits. It is a very extreme diet in many ways. I think it's dramatic and fascinating how it has helped the health of people with profound issues, autoimmune. It's like it almost seems like a magic bullet for serious autoimmune issues. And I always say, I view it as the ultimate elimination diet. Forget your FODMAPs. That's just playing around. If you've got irritable bowel, you know, celiac or, or severe autoimmune disease, or like I interviewed Michaela Peterson and released it a few weeks ago, a fascinating story and Jordan's experience. And I would say if I had a serious autoimmune type inflammatory problem and I wasn't getting results, I would as an engineer do the ultimate elimination diet of carnivore, like say meat, fish and eggs, for six or seven weeks and give it time and see, well, have I dramatically improved my condition? And if you do, then you say, okay, deep breath, don't move too fast here. I got to be really careful now because I know I'm sensitive and slowly add in other foods and give at least a week to see, because you need, Michaela made it very clear, it might be five, six days before your reaction occurs. You got a lag time. That kills engineers and problem solving. So give a lot of time and slowly introduce foods and any problems, you know, get worse again, then retrace your steps, keep a diary. So I, I just think of it as a potentially enormous tool for certain disease states that could be really powerful. For everyone to start going carnivore because it's the default best for everyone, well, I'd wait on the date for that, I guess. What do, what do you think, yeah. Jeff? I, but I think it's interesting. I think they're asking the right questions and challenging the right paradigms. I think the notion of you don't actually need fiber. Hmm. Look, it seems like the people that are doing it, they're doing fine. I didn't have any issues personally when I was doing a block of carnivore for, I believe, six weeks. I didn't have any problems with bowel movement. So it's like, hmm, like it's an interesting N equals one these case studies, these stories just have broadened my perspective of what's possible uh, or, or how little we know. 
And I think it just also just flips me to the, to the side of people kind of think that a vegan diet is so great. And but there's not a lot of pushback in the same way there's a pushback for carnivore. And it's like, where's the RCTs? Where's the longitudinal data on vegan diets? It is literally impossible to eat vegan back in the day. Like you just cannot even like forge enough calories from just from these things. So we've I've just realized over the last four or five years, you know, diving into the space myself that it's it's a lot of it's personalized, a lot of it's dependent on your baseline of what your health is and then where you want to go. If you're looking to be a bodybuilder, you might have a very different nutrition strategy than trying to be a marathon runner or trying to live as long as possible. We all have to be sensitive to our baseline states and where we want to go. And then let's find the nutritional and exercise and all the other strategies to allow us to achieve our goals. That's my thought. Excellent summary. Yeah, no, that's exactly it. And and David uh, always reminds me that, you know, by looking out for the people like him who had huge disease, who may have sensitivities, if you want to save lives, you have to err on the side of safety. So it may very well turn out that carnivore could be good for a a person with major heart disease with lots of saturated fat but there are some signs it might not and you always got to go the safest route on behalf of those people uh, but then other healthy people like amber ahern is carnivore and uh god help us with a zero calcium score sean baker you know yeah. <laughs> big sean and yeah. and and they have pulled out a ton of science especially amber which in fairness does counter the fiber argument the vitamin c argument and they've done amazing research work to counter all of the the arguments against it which is great to see but i i think you're right we'll we let the science keep getting debated and i think it's a fair point to say that a vegan can't call that an extreme diet any more than a carnivore (laughs) can call vegan they're both they're both on polar opposites and you know historically in evolution no paleoanthropologist would ever argue with largely we are vegan yeah there's just no way there's no there's no ancestral uh vegan peoples at all and you could argue we're nearly all if you go back far enough we evolved through you know bone marrow and scavenging and becoming hominids and bipedal striding hunters the paleoanthropologists who specialize in this almost to a man or a woman just accept without a doubt that we evolved through the nutrient and energy density of animal foods and then now that we've got here with flexibility over the ice ages and and over the millennia we can make lots of choices now but we got here we had to access that that super energy and nutrient dense to actually evolve i think is fair (laughs) yeah i think the data in the in the historical record i think supports that but I will say, I think the strongest argument for the vegan side of things is an ethical moral question around, is it ethical to be enslaving animals and putting them in cages and all of that? And I think that, to me, is the most compelling argument for that lifestyle. But I think when they step into, this is healthier, this is more optimal for function, that's where I don't see any evidence there. So I think if you make the moral, maybe the environmental argument I think that data is more nuanced. Um, I think that that seems like there's more ground there, more meat there to chew, uh, if you excuse the pun. But the health side, I think, is a little bit of a stretch. It is. And, and I wish they would use all their energy to argue about bad conditions for animals, cruelty to animals, and even uh, unhealthiness of factory farmed animals with, with uh, antibiotics and, and hormones and focus on the real issues and just not try and tell people they shouldn't eat in a ancestral way properly reared meats properly humanely managed 
yeah. but they won't they don't seem to stick to that they, they seem to want to go for all the climate arguments and all of the um nutritional meat kills you arguments and it's not helpful yeah and then one question i wanted to ask was if you have infinite resources and infinite ex- subjects to uh tinker with what kind of clinical trials would you like to see done in the world? I think for me, I think some of the questions that you kind of raised up around exogenous ketones or ketone esters, I think would be interesting to me. I think there's researchers around like Stephen Cunane or Mary Newport have looked at exogenous ketones or MCTs or precursors of ketones for rescuing brain energy deficit in Alzheimer's patients, for example, is an interesting area. There's some interesting signal around traumatic brain injury and concussion prophylaxis with something like ketone esters or or exogenous ketones. So those would be some of areas that I would like to see more work done. So turning the table to you, if you had one, two, three studies that you'd like to see run in the world, what would they be? Right. Well, I agree with you. I mean, absolutely. All of those disease states, there's huge potential there for ketone esters and everything like and ketone salts, all that stuff. For me, I'm probably a little, I'm more focused uh, very much in my role and my job on the broad masses. And that's diabetes, heart disease and, and Alzheimer's, but not necessarily trying to fix it, but stop it ever happening. And some of the cancers. So, but particularly heart disease, I'd love to do a trial where I define the intervention and the control and do the control to follow the current guidelines, the food pyramid, and have it very well tracked what they eat, not just a a questionnaire each six months, uh, twice questionnaires. I mean, you put them in a metabolic ward. Um, I, I don't think I'm I'm over the whole thing about metabolic advantage and needing to be in a ward. I know Gary Taubes and 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 DNA and they're all arguing. I'm not so worried about that. I'm not so worried about weight loss. I would like to put people on the, the control diet uh, as per the orthodoxy and make sure that they are eating it and track everything they eat properly, which often isn't done. And I would like to choose the lifestyle re- regime for the other group. And I would like to use healthy fats. I'd like to get, you know, sun exposure or UV, magnesium, potassium. Now, I know it sounds multi-factor, Jeff, and I know you should change one factor, but I'd love to put together my six years of research is around seven or eight factors, including dietary. I'd love to put together the magic combo against the standard of care. <laughs> and just track middle-aged people. Oh, well, I have to ask. I have to ask. So what is the Ivor Cummins stack of six eight things well we 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 had 10 rules in our book and i don't often remember them now because so much water has passed since last year but you know you eliminate all refined carbs sugars and vegetable oils right so that's gone three eliminations low carb healthy fats and we won't define it here but i'd have quite a lot of definitions as to you know what that should look like ideally and then fasting is probably something you couldn't put in even though it's one of our big rules because you could argue it's cheating to have one side fast and the other not. So in fairness, you'd probably have to leave that out. But the appetite control from healthy, low-carb, well-formulated, and the ability to skip meals, I think, is huge advantages. Ketosis and and everything else. And then um, sun, sleep, stress. I'd probably accept that the sleep stress is randomized and not try and get people to sleep better and be less stressed. Not realistic. But sun, I'd like to see with vitamin D lamp, UV exposure, not necessarily vitamin D pills. I'd like to see the good group get UV exposure from FDA approved lamps, nothing unsafe, and get their vitamin D levels tracked and upped 
responding to UV, which makes nitric oxide and vasodilation and many other photo products. We're not even sure what they do. And um, exercise, then I think I try and standardize for both sides. I know exercise benefits, but I'd like to see more of the other things rather than exercise in this trial. So I, I don't know if I've covered them there. Oh, and supplements is the other of the four S's. So sun, supplements, sleep, stress. So supplements you could, but basic ones, magnesium, potassium, some of the key minerals, and K2. But in fairness, you can't bombard your your uh, experimental group with tons of supplements because that would be going overboard. But a few key agreed ones, which I think are important. And, and just get this, this combination of, of all the things that we have the best science for and pit it against the orthodox standard what you should do i would love that and i just would <laughs> almost just love to see what the orthodox no one has done an rct on the orthodox like population so it's just like funny when when people say oh what is the data on your recommendations like well the standard orthodox food pyramid no one's really actually done an rct on that either so we're all <laughs> everyone just shooting from the hip a little bit. And yesterday I did a podcast with Bill Blanchett, who's an internal medicine specialist, preventative cardiology, and an, a scanning specialist. He uses CAC all the time, and he's just he's all over it. He knows the value. But he said in thirteen or fourteen years with previous heart attack patients or high scores, he's only had one non-fatal and one fatal case. After he puts them on low carb vitamin D bit of niacin, low-dose statin, da-da-da-da. I mean, he's basically done the wheat belly or, or what we would largely agree with. And, and he's, he said, I know it's not a published study, but I just have not since I've started these regimens of low-carb, etc., etc., what we talked about. I just don't see repeat heart attacks. I have guys like who were in their 50s when they had the first one in the 60s, and that's like 17, 18 years ago. So I just wonder if you did it really right versus standard crap, uh, what would the cardiovascular event rate curves look like? They they could be just outrageous. Yeah, I'd love to see that data. I think that would save a lot of lives and, and help oh, yeah. inform a lot of people's lifestyle. Or we're proven wrong here, and that would be great too. Like, let's let's see. Let, let us see. So this is a fascinating conversation. I know you have a book. I know you have a podcast. You have Fat Emperor. Uh, both your Twitter handle and your website. Uh, how do people dive in to uh, learn more about all your work? How, where do people follow along? Yeah, well, I'd say if you Google Ivor Cummins, you quickly hit the YouTube channel, my website, thefatemperor.com, and the podcast page is probably the big one there. I've done 14 in the last few weeks, and I'm going to keep pumping them out two or three a week. Uh, one guest per week and one or two podcast shorts with just me with slides, 10, 15 minutes on a health topic. That's probably a big thing. And next week, we're going to revamp the IHDA.ie website. It's It needs some love and attention. So we're redoing IHDA.ie and it will have a storehouse of all interviews with the top cardiologists and imaging professors and a free viewing of the Widowmaker movie which I can give a link to you afterwards. So it's going to put all the CAC information in one place. So I'm going to keep linking to that. All right, Ivor, thank you so much for the time and keep keeping up with the good fight. Thanks a lot. I really enjoyed it, Jeff. And thank you, Zill. I don't know if you're still there. Bye now. Thanks so much for tuning in this week, everyone. If you want to learn more about HVMN and our offerings, visit www.hvmn.com forward slash pod. 
Also, by writing a review on our iTunes page and sending a screenshot to podcast at hvmn.com, we'll hook you up with $15 worth of HVMN store credit. Our last shout out goes to our listener survey, which lets us know who you are better so we can continue making episodes that you find most valuable. So visit go.hvmn.com forward slash podcast survey. For that, it'll only take a few minutes and new submissions are eligible for an HVMN ketone giveaway. So it's well worth the time. Until next time, study smart, train hard and live well.